For about a month now, we've been tracking the rollbacks of various environmental regulations and at the same time, the fast tracking of permits for new oil and gas projects. What we've seen doing this reporting is that there's this sort of two-part lever happening. You've got the EPA working on rollbacks at the same time that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, otherwise known as FERC, is working on rubber stamping any oil and gas project that crosses its desk. FERC is an almost impossible institution to write about or even think about, and that's kind of by design. It's incredibly complex and basically sort of a black box. Even when they do publish their reasoning behind different decisions, it's so hard to parse that it's almost impossible to understand. And that's from someone who reads energy policy stuff all the time. I can only imagine what a layperson would do with the FERC website. Those kinds of things are what a new lawsuit against FERC is trying to undo. The lawsuit was filed in the DC District Court by Food and Water Watch and Berkshire Environmental Action against the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And it charges that the national body that regulates new gas infrastructure projects is failing to consider the climate impacts of the pipelines and related infrastructure that it's tasked with reviewing. Now, this is important because a few years ago, legislation was passed that requires FERC to consider climate change impacts of the projects that it's approving or not. Except FERC hasn't really done that. They've restricted emissions reviews to just looking at the construction phase of a project, which is absurd when you're thinking about oil and gas projects. Their justification is that they couldn't possibly know what the future climate impacts will be of any given project, which again just seems silly. The suit is not against FERC for its process in general. It focuses on a specific project in Massachusetts called the 261 Upgrade Project. It basically is a two-mile pipeline and a new compressor unit near Springfield, Massachusetts. There's been a fair bit of back and forth about this project in the local area, and ultimately FERC denied various requests to stop the project. It did not do so unanimously. There is one commissioner, Richard Glick, who pointed out that, quote, claiming that a project has no significant environmental impacts, while at the same time refusing to assess the significance of the project's impact on the most important environmental issue of our time, is not reasoned decision-making. If Food and Water Watch and the Berkshire Environmental Action Team win this case, it could have major implications for the way that FERC permits oil and gas projects across the country. I asked Adam Carlesco, the attorney leading this case, to come on and explain a bit more about it and what it could mean. We'll have that conversation for you in a minute after a word from this episode's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. 
such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Adam, what's the backdrop of this case? FERC is supposed to consider the climate impacts of energy projects that it's permitting, right? So how did that come about and how have they been able to avoid doing that so far? Yeah, this was a a Sierra Club versus FERC 2017 decided case before the D.C. Circuit. It dealt with the Sabal Trail uh, and a pipeline that was going through the southeast. It was meant to feed a series of natural gas-powered power plants. And when FERC went to go issue its certificate order for this project to proceed, they had essentially dismissed all climate considerations, emissions downstream of the pipeline. And they had looked to really just include what kind of emissions would come out of construction of these pipeline systems and the compressor stations. So this was challenged in court by Sierra Club. The DC circuit came back and said that FERC really could not disregard this sort of information. It was something that was required under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, and that when reviewing emissions under NEPA, they needed to include reasonably foreseeable indirect effects, which would be in the case of a pipeline, which is designed to be a conduit to convey gas for combustion, typically, the foreseeable event of that being combusted, especially if you knew that this was going to two power plants. And so the court handed back FERC this decision and said, you need to assess emissions downstream or adequately explain why you cannot. And then FERC proceeded to move forward with a policy after this decision that essentially disregarded regarded that entire case and what it had required of them by doing more linguistic gymnastics, essentially to say that climate impacts are innately unforeseeable. It's impossible for us to tell what's going to be happening with much of gas moving through pipelines. We're not getting any information within our permit application process from the pipeline developers who are trying, you know, who would have the information as to where this gas is coming from and where it's going to. They said that they did not have this information and could not make reasonable projections. This was refuted in a case that was then decided last year, I believe it was in November. The case was Lori Burkhead v. Fur. And the court kind of danced around making a definitive answer because the plaintiffs didn't directly address this issue. But within some of the, the discussions of the court, they essentially came to the conclusion that it was reasonably easy for FERC to ask pipeline applicants to give information as to where they're getting this gas from. What would be the upstream effects? Would this be incentivizing uh, broader drilling that's going on within the Marcellus Shale uh, for a pipeline like the the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline? Would this be going to a power plant? Would this be going to distribution centers for combusting in homes? Would this be going to 
you know, a, an ethane cracker so that you can make plastics with it. These are the sorts of things that would be reasonably foreseeable in direct effects. However, FERC has kind of disregarded all of that and done a blanket policy that says that because we somehow dodge around this question and say that any and all emissions downstream and upstream are completely unforeseeable. We don't know how any of these projects will impact broader climate issues. We just can essentially mark this zero and say that we don't even have to address this elephant in the room. And by doing so, they put their finger on the scale in favor of project development uh, by having essentially the largest environmental issue of our generation be completely disregarded when they're doing environmental review of these projects. Uh, so they're not getting a, a good reasoned agency decision-making out of this process and not really giving reasonable information to concerned public or even to getting that information before regulators, the, the commission itself, to make reasoned decisions. Okay. And then what are the particulars of this case that you've brought? So this particular lawsuit deals with a relatively small project outside of Springfield, Massachusetts, in the town of Agawam. It's about two miles of additional pipeline. It's a thicker pipeline, and they are installing an upgrade to a compressor station unit that already has two smaller compressor units in it, taking those out, decommissioning them, and putting in one large mega compressor unit that is roughly double the capacity of the previous compressor station. And so we're challenging the approval of this. Aside from the climate considerations, we have members that live within the community. One of our declarants lives 500 feet from this compressor station unit. And before they did the upgrades to put in the compressor units that they're now decommissioning, uh, she had lived there since 1979, had never had an issue with this. <clears throat> Occasionally, small-scale compressors would run during the winter to get gas uh, further into the state. But now, with the broader expansion of, of gas power throughout much of uh, the Northeast, she's seeing this come on regularly. They're getting blowdown events that are blowing a mix of methane and natural gas and other sorts of fossil fuel emissions into the ambient atmosphere. Being 500 feet away, it's getting into her house. She's had headaches. She's had to go to the hospital for these issues. This compressor station's also about 2,000 feet from Six Flags, New England, and it's to the west of it, so downwind of uh, where this compressor unit is. We don't feel that FERC has really adequately assessed many of the issues that are coming before the commission that needs to be included when they make the assessment that this is in the public necessity, and uh, you know, I think the certificate is called the Certificate Order of Public Convenience and Necessity. So they have to make a consideration as to the environmental impacts of their harms weighed against how much this, the society and the broader community requires this sort of infrastructure. And in making this conclusion, they've disregarded letters from the Massachusetts Attorney General's office saying that you're promptly disregarding plans that uh, could promote renewable energy. You're not including considerations of electric power compressor units rather than just sticking to a gas power compressor unit. They didn't do a full assessment of this project because they'd rather rubber stamp many of these things that come before them uh, on behalf of pipeline companies, Kinder Morgan, these, these large kind of vertically integrated companies oftentimes, they wish to see these projects kind of moved through. I think in past several years, there's really only been one project before FERC that's been rejected as it pertains to natural gas. So the, the rates of approval for FERC are incredibly high, and that's why they have a reputation of being a rubber stamp. So there, there are a number of issues pertaining to this particular compressor station, uh, and it doesn't help that it's going 
to be constructed within Springfield, Massachusetts, which the American Allergy and Asthma Foundation found to be the number one worst city in the country for asthmatics due to a mix of air pollutants, pollen, hospital visits, and asthmatic fatalities. So you're getting worse air quality in an already vulnerable airshed. You know, it's funny, when I first heard about this case, I initially assumed it was about the Weymouth compressor, because that's another one that seems to be being built to transport gas for which there are no customers. And there's all these weird issues where they haven't really thought through where the pipeline is coming from, where it's going. It's sort of a pipeline to nowhere situation. And that brings us to a broader issue that has been going on with FERC generally. Uh, And it's something that was actually raised in a letter within the FERC docket from both senators of Massachusetts, Markey and Warren. They said that there was a metering station that was associated with this project that was considered under permit applications by the state of Massachusetts uh, that FERC considered to be a separate project. And they subdivided these projects so that they could review them individually, say that because they're so individually small, they don't rise to the threshold of a significant environmental impact. Uh, and so they, they keep doing this by making particular projects as small as possible, and then they don't review the broader infrastructure built out within, an, within a city, within an area, within a region. And so when they wind up approving compressor station, pipeline, associated infrastructure after associated infrastructure, they never take a broader look as to what that looks like in terms of the growing and snaking pipeline system across this country. And so they're, they're causing death by a million companies. That's interesting because, you know, we've been tracking new permits and regulatory requests since the pandemic hit. And it seems like FERC has been really fast tracking oil and gas permits lately. They are. And it's it's grabbed the attention of, of not just uh, advocates like Food and Water Watch, but also the eyes of the House Oversight Committee and their subcommittee on civil rights. Uh, Jamie Raskin, who is my own representative down here in Maryland, uh, has led this uh, a whole letter to FERC on behalf of a broader congressional delegation, asking them to halt certificate orders, approving new infrastructure uh, in, in the interim. And so they promptly disregarded that, saying that uh, I think Chatterjee, the chairman of FERC, gave some sort of platitude of how we must serve our customers and and do the best to get projects going on. But they're not really considering what is going on around them and the, and the broader world, the complete collapse of the energy industry. And they're still moving forward like it's, you know, 2018. It seems pretty nuts that these projects that won't even be online for potentially years are somehow getting critical infrastructure designations that are supposed to be for facilities that are currently providing power, right? We've even seen some plastic plants getting that designation. There's a shell plant under construction in Pennsylvania that was deemed critical. Yeah. And I think that comes to a broader issue as to how... I think the more umbrella Department of Energy has been dealing with cracker and plasticization units and considering them to be somehow tied to the energy system just because they use the waste stream that comes off of the, the oil and gas industry to, to essentially monetize it and turn it into plastics. Okay, so what's next for this case? So it, it has been docketed before the D.C. Circuit. Procedural motions are going to be due May 22nd, and then dispositive motions are going to be due June 8th. And, and then dispositive would be motions to dismiss any sort of challenges on standing. Uh, once that is passed, then it goes to briefings on the merit. And then hopefully we would get some sort of expedited decision coming forward since this is a project under construction. Motion to dismiss is kind of a standard 
movement from a lot of uh, government agencies as it relates to environmental litigation. That said, spoken with some folks, looked at the declarants that we have. I feel like our standing is strong. We have people who have been directly impacted by this. They live within the community. They've been involved in the FERC process from day one. These are the things that, unless FERC really feels like burning taxpayer money and time, trying to burn down a clock, it would not be in the best interests of everyone involved to proceed with challenging on standing grounds. So we're we're hopeful that just, you know, keeps moving, we get to the merits quickly and you know, get a decision that's favorable to us. Okay, great. We'll keep an eye out for it. Thanks, Adam. Oh, oh, thank you for the interest and thank you for getting this out there. I think it's important and I'm glad that you guys are offering this service to to get this news out. it for this time. We'll be back soon with more stories coming out of our ongoing reporting on climate and environmental rollbacks and waivers amid the coronavirus pandemic. If you'd like to support that work, please visit drillednews.com support dash us for options. We'll stick that link in the show notes too. You can sign up for a newsletter, our Patreon, give a one-time donation. Anything you can and want to do is very much appreciated, especially right now when I know everyone is struggling. Thank you guys. Your help is really appreciated. It's keeping us going on this policy tracker project. So you're very important to us right now and we appreciate your support. A reminder too that we are working on some upcoming narrative series and both our Patreon members and our Substack subscribers will get early access to those series. We'll also have some members-only bonus content coming at you soon, so look for that. Thanks again, and thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.